the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business, a podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Cliff Taylor, sitting in for Kieran Hancock. On this week's episode, we'll hear from Director of CIPD Ireland, Mary Connaughton, as she explains the skills shortages being felt in many sectors, as outlined in the Institute's HR Practices in Ireland Survey 2023. But before that, anyone renewing their health insurance policy could be in for a nasty shock, with premiums going up across the board. Dermot Good of TotalHealthCover.ie, a Lockton company, joins me now to tease out the reasons behind the increases and to offer some sage advice to consumers looking for the best policy for their budget. Dermot, we've seen a string of increases announced in the health insurance industry in recent weeks, culminating in uh, VHI today with a 7% rise. Can you put this in context in terms of what it's going to mean for households when they come to renew their health insurance? Yeah, so unfortunately, no good news now for any health insurance consumers. What this will mean typically for a family of two adults and two children uh, under 18, what it's going to mean, depending on the plan that they have, they could be facing a total increase of anything from maybe 150 to 550 euro. Uh, That's assuming that they stay on the same plan come renewal, which obviously we we wouldn't be recommending. I, I think there's two pitfalls that they're they're falling into right now. Uh, number one, they are relying on the average figures, which you can't rely on because that that's across every plan. So, for example, Leia announced their increase a couple of weeks ago, and the average is three percent. But already, some of the limited analysis we've done shows some of the popular schemes could be going up by nearly double that. And bear in mind, the earlier increases that all the insurance companies announced back in quarter one. They all increased by about four, four point five to five percent. But some of the plans back then went up by seven and a half to ten percent. So the first, I suppose, warning is never rely on the average. You must look at the specific increase that's applicable to your plan, whether you're a family or an individual or, e- or even an employer scheme. Um, the second pitfall, though, is that a lot of consumers have forgotten completely about the increases that were announced in March and April this year and January with Irish Life. So. What that now means is when they hear the latest increases, they're thinking, okay, three, five, six percent, seven, maybe I can absorb that. But when you combine the two increases together, the cumulative effect means that a lot of people now are facing increases of 10 to 16 percent, um, which is colossal mm-hmm. and, and it's unprecedented. We, we probably haven't seen that level of increase in the market for maybe 10 years or more uh, where you have two increases of that magnitude. So it just means that as we approach the busy renewal period, which is kind of December through to February, and um, pretty much most consumers are going to have to shop around. For a lot of people, this they will not be able to absorb this. It's just it's it's too significant. So they're going to have to shop around and engage. And for a lot of people, that's daunting. They just don't like the prospect of doing that. But they'll have no choice, I think. Sure. Uh, we'll come back to the consumer advice in a minute. But why why is this happening now, Dermot? Why are the increases uh, so sharp? Yeah, I mean, the, each of the insurance companies are attributing this to spiraling claims. I mean, when, when the increases were announced earlier in the year, they, they were talking about concerns about rising claims. And, and bear in mind, they're, they're always working two to three years out because it can take them two years to fully bank uh, any increase. Um, and then shortly after that increase, um, May, June, 
then we started hearing rumors of real concerns over, let's just say, the, the rising cost again of claims that whatever they budgeted for, it wasn't sufficient. And they've particularly cited the private hospital sector, the high-tech hospitals, which are BlackRock Clinic and the Matter Private. And it just looks like everybody who postponed or deferred treatment during COVID, they're all going back now. Once the mask restriction was lifted, it looks like everybody's going back and rescheduling those hip, knee and shoulder mm -hmm. replacement, those high-cost elective surgeries. So that's definitely a factor. Um, it also looks like on the outpatient side, everybody's claiming every single penny that they're entitled to. And then the other thing that they're obviously talking about is, is increasing costs right across the board for new technologies, new robotic procedures, also the cost of cancer drugs. There was some media coverage there some months back about insurers not covering certain drugs. That now has been rectified. But whenever they decide to cover something, those costs do get passed on and then increasing labor costs and so on. So there's kind of a mixed bag. I suppose the one thing that was a surprise for us last year was we knew medical inflation was running at 5 to 8% each year. Mm. But yet last year, and by the way, we also, you know, we heard soundings from the private hospitals in particular that their costs were escalating and that will be factored into the negotiations with the insurance companies. But yet last year, the insurance companies pretty much kept all their rates flat. And in fact, mm. you know, some people will recall they gave money back to consumers because they, they didn't pay out what they expected to pay out in claims. You know, maybe now that wasn't the right move, but obviously competitive pressures meant they had to do it. And maybe they should have passed on a 3 to 5% increase last year just to keep in line with inflation. Yeah. And then if that had to happen, maybe we might have had a smoother, you know, uh, rate introduction this year. But, but look, eating bread is soon forgotten. Everybody wants price reductions and nobody wants price increases. So we're all happy to get that last year. But unfortunately, now that door is firmly closed. We're we're back into, uh, I suppose, a very volatile period now for health insurance pricing, um, and that's why everybody needs to brace themselves for these these double digit increases. And hopefully, there won't be any more. But we can't rule out. I mean, the other the other unknowns as we approach year end is that at year end, the government always looks at the public hospital charges. And bear in mind, they've done away with the public hospital the the eighty euro per night charge. So that means that they could have a gap in their budget of 300 million or so. So the question is, could that be passed on to the insurers in some other way? And we don't know. Um, and to be fair to government, there's been no indication either way on that. And also the health insurance levies are reviewed by the health insurance authority um, as we approach year end. They could make recommendations to either reduce or maintain or even increase those, those charges. So you know, if there was any upper pressure on public hospital charges or the levies, those charges get passed on pretty quickly to consumers. So, you know, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but we really are in kind of uncharted water here in, in terms of what could happen on pricing. Okay. Worrying if indeed if this is start, part of a trend. I mean, is it a case that some consumers are going to be locked out of the market or that they'll decide, for example, to remove their children from a policy because they reckon that they could get, uh, you know, decent care in the public system? Or, or, or what way are consumers likely to react to this, do you think? Yeah, so what we tend to see in terms of consumer behaviour, once these increases kick in, and, you know, people, we've already seen a little bit of this, given that Irish Life's second increase went through in, in, um, in July. So the types of things we're expecting is that people at the lower end, um, particularly younger members who are on the, the lowest price plans, um, a lot of them, especially now when you look at the other pressures they're under on interest rates and utilities and everything else, 
a lot of them could drop out altogether because they're under 35. They're, you know, they're young, they're healthy, they're not really using their cover and they don't have to worry about age loading. So that's something we will expect to see. And then for people on the mid-level schemes, people with families, you know, if they if these increases are not affordable, which I expect could be the case for a lot of them, what they will do is they will start looking at reducing their cover. And that means taking on higher excesses, maybe limiting their hospital access, reducing their accommodation cover, maybe getting rid of outpatient cover, you know, maybe removing people, lower risk members from the policies. There are some difficult choices now going to face consumers. And, and then I suppose you have the older members who, for a lot of them that we deal with, they need to keep good cover in place. They have underlying conditions and they are claiming regularly. But, you know, I was looking at one or two of the, the older VHI plans like Health Plus Extra, the old Plan B options. If I assume a 7% increase on that plan, the year-on-year increase for one adult could be eight, could be 400 wow. euro. So a retired couple might have to find 750, 800 euro extra just to stay on that plan. And for a lot of people on fixed incomes, you know, that just won't be possible. So they will have some difficult choices. They will have to consider maybe reducing their cover or maybe switching insurer. You know, all all choices that they really don't want to make. And a lot of people, a lot of older people in particular, are very fearful of change and are very worried about doing anything with their cover. A lot of them just roll their cover over each year. You know, so there will be some difficult choices. I would say as well, Cliff, a lot of people who are thinking of joining and we need younger members mm-hmm. joining all the time because that that protects community rating. A lot of them, when they hear all of these, you know, spiraling increases, double digits, I think that could cause a lot of people maybe just to defer the, that purchase and put it off for a while or whatever. So, you know, it, there will be no surprises, but it's typical, the type of behavior we, we've seen previously, we're expecting that now to to, uh, to occur as these increases kick in. I mean, the only comfort I would give to consumers, though, is that like a lot of people already, if we park these increases, a lot of people are already overpaying. And about, you know, I think only about 25% of people really actively shop around. So 75% of people, like if you're on the same plan for five years or more, if you're paying more than 1850 per adult, if you're not on one of these new corporate plans that, by the way, anybody can join, you know, if you don't have a small excess on your policy, if you have everybody on the same plan, if you haven't split your cover, um, then straight away, those people are overpaying. And anybody who's on the old, like, as I say, plan B options or the the essential plus schemes with Leia or health manager schemes or the old level two schemes or business plan schemes with Irish Life, those members, irrespective of this price increase, they are probably missing out on savings of 500 to 1,000 euro per adult. So I think there's a lot of people, you know, I think what will happen here is these increases will, will prompt a lot of people to shop around who maybe would ordinarily just roll their cover over. And I, I would also, you know, if I go back to the older cohort again, and I suppose without picking on that cohort, but but where we know the, the kind of behavior that we see from, from these people, because obviously good quality cover is really important for them. Um, but I would say to their families, to their sons, their daughters, their cousins, you know, neighbors, friends, um, you need to help them to review their cover because they're easily frightened and they're easily, you know, they're easily, I suppose, advised to do nothing and just roll over. Those people, when they get proper advice and they approach the task properly, they can save a lot of money, never mind these increases. But a lot of people now are going to to have to shop around because, as I say, the, the level of increase, even for employer schemes, like very few employers out there can just absorb 15, 16 percent. And even if they do, that's an extra 15 percent of benefit in kind to the staff. Exactly. So, you know, it's... Um, 
There's no good news in this for, for anybody. What I would say, though, Cliff, maybe another, if there's any comfort in this, some of the analysis that I've already done, like not every plan is going up okay. and not every plan is going up by that percentage. So there's little hidden gems already in there because the insurance companies have to look after their corporate clients. And I see, for example, one of Leia's plans, the Inspire Plus, only went up by about 4% earlier in the year, is not going up in the second mm-hmm. round. A really good value scheme. I see Leia are bringing in a free cover offer for the second and subsequent child under 18. You know, So for any family that maybe is currently paying for the three children, there's an option there from September to move the two youngest kids to a free plan with Leia that could help you know, subsidize or cover these extra costs. I see Irish Life Health, even though all their plans went up quite substantially, they have a range of new plans they brought out uh, called Health Guide. And they only went up by about three and a half percent in January, but haven't gone up um, or, or once this year, they haven't gone up a second time. So the people who engage properly with the insurers and when you phone the insurers, when I say engage with them, you really should phone them up as soon as your notice lands. Tell them what your budget is and ask them to find you the closest equivalent plan to what you currently have and get them to look across all their plans and just sit back and wait and see what they offer you. And then whatever they come up with, you know, that fits the budget, have them explain to you on the phone exactly how that compares to what you have, what's different, what's reduced. And some people are shocked to find they can actually get the cover they need with the exact same insurer and sometimes save money and simply because they haven't shopped around properly in the last five, six years. And if you don't get what you need from your current provider, you simply repeat that process with the other two. Um, But people will have to shop around now. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, it's an interesting point about people you know, going to their existing provider and finding that they can actually offer them the same product at a cheaper price. I mean, shouldn't the insurers be alerting them to that? It it just seems from a consumer point of view that you look at these, you know, many, many policies that all the different providers offer you. You don't know where to start. You know, it's very difficult in terms of looking through websites and, and trying to compare cover and trying to decide what's really important to you. Yeah, no, Cliff, it's a really good point. And you know what? And you mentioned comparison sites there. I mean, I would advise anybody listening to this, you should never buy a policy off a comparison site. They are a good guide. I would question the accuracy of some of them, but you should never make a final decision or purchase because they never show you everything. And as well, you know, Cliff, the, the two biggest renewals, the 31st of December and the 1st of January, two biggest renewals of the year, and they couldn't come at a worse time for people. Um, so unfortunately, a lot of people... They're well-intentioned, they mean to do it, and then suddenly Christmas, New Year, they're traveling, whatever, and next thing, the next direct debit comes out at the end of January, and they realize they've never, they didn't do anything, and suddenly they're locked into uh, the same contract again for another year. So really, the advice to people now is you need to start that process as early as possible. And the best advice is to phone up the insurance company and just engage with them. I mean, to be fair, they want to keep your business. They're bound under the consumer code and the legislation to give you proper advice. So the more specific you are in terms of your questioning, like here's my budget, here's my key hospitals, you have my plan, here's my concerns in terms of claims and and procedures, and here's my expenditure and outpatient expenses and everything, then they have to recommend an appropriate plan that that matches all of that and fits fits your budget. And you see, Cliff, there's new plans coming out all the time. Like we're expecting new plans to come out now in October, uh, brand new schemes that aren't currently in the market right now. So that's why the people who do this every year and the people who, I suppose, engage with the insurance companies, the goalposts will move slightly every year. 
And if you review your, your cover property, you will basically yeah. track those moving goalposts. But there are thousands upon thousands of people who never review their cover properly. They roll it over each year. And um, particularly the older members, as I say, who are mo maybe most fearful of changing, even though we have seen a lot of people now, you know, they're more open to change. They realize there's no such thing as loyalty in health insurance. None. Doesn't exist. They realize that they can't be penalized, you know, for, for switching. If I'm about to get a hip replacement and it's covered on my current policy and I switch to another policy with somebody else that fully covers the procedure, but at a lower cost, they must take me on. They must play my claim and there will be no break in my cover whatsoever. So I think the media has done a really good job, you know, in making people aware of the protections that are in place. So we are seeing increasing switching activity. But like even when I mention switching, it's funny, a lot of people that I would speak to and even when I'm doing presentations, I know when I mention switching, a lot of people don't want to switch from their current provider. But 50% of all people that we recommend switch their cover, we recommend they switch to a different plan with the same insurer. So, you know, switching doesn't necessarily mean switching away from the provider you've been with to, to somebody new. Um, so that's why shopping around, doing it properly, you know, that's, that's really recommended. And I think these increases now, because they just will be unaffordable to a lot of people, they're going to, they've no choice now but to engage. Engage, you know, or else cancel the cover. And I, I'd love to say to people that you don't need the cover, you know, that it's a luxury purchase, that the public hospital mm. system is, has turned a corner and it's really fit for purpose. Now, there looks like there are signs of some improvements there, but no, it's it's definitely not like the waiting lists are still uh, very significant. So if you if you want to have, con you know, choice of consultant, choice of hospital, choice of accommodation, choice of when you go in, if you're self-employed or, you know, family, if, when you go into hospital, and if you want to have control over your access, in other words, that you can go in immediately for whatever it is it might be, you know, whether it's life-threatening or whether it's elective surgery, you either have to have a very large bank balance or you need quality health cover. And um, <laughs> I, I just don't think the public system yet, despite some of the the indicators that it might be improving, it's it's a long way from from getting to a position where you could say to people, look, maybe you don't need the private cover. Yeah. Will that point come at some stage if the Slaughter Care programme is introduced and private care is removed from public hospitals? It's a really good question. I mean, I don't want to be sceptical here, but like I remember the, the universal health care plan. Yeah. You know, Slaughter Care has been out now for, I don't know, six, seven mm -hmm. years. And it doesn't, I mean, there are definite like improvements, but in terms of the fundamentals, like from my point of view, until they get rid of the elephant in the room, which are the waiting lists, then it doesn't matter whether it's slaughter care, universal yeah. health care, it, it won't work. So if you want me, like, and even if you look at the public hospitals, and I know one of the, one of the, um, one of the plans is to make sure that all public hospital treatment is for public patients only and move everything else, you know, private patients only go to private hospitals, but there are no private hospitals really for pediatric care um, <clears throat> or for maternity care. So until some of those services are fully available to private patients in the private hospitals, that's not going to work. And, you know, right now there are lots of treatments that people are, you know, particularly very life-threatening treatments they're getting in the public system and, and getting very well treated. So, but until, whilst you have 650, 700,000 people waiting quite significant times uh, for, you know, for, for medical treatment, um, until you remove that, and, and I've been around now for a long time. I've seen successive governments over the last 20 years talk about various things that they're going to do. 
but those and obviously COVID exacerbated everything. Um, but that's the real elephant in the room. So until they tackle that and they show a clear plan, like even if it took, if you were able to reduce that list by 70, 100,000 each year, it's still seven to 10 years before you get rid of that waiting list, you know. Um, so there are some real challenges in the public system. And I, and I don't envy the people trying to trying to resolve that one. And that's why for me, private, like private health insurance for me is just essential, absolutely essential. You know, I don't want to be told I have to wait six months to get an urgent colonoscopy or an urgent MRI, I want to get access to that straight away. So, so I think for now, a lot of people, they will not want to forgo or even reduce their health cover. But these increases, Cliff, are going to force a lot of people to, to rethink that and maybe make some difficult choices, you know. Okay. Listen, great advice there, I think, uh, for health insurance uh, customers. Dermot, thank you very much for joining us. Not at all. My pleasure. Thank you. We'll be back after this short break to find out why so many sectors are struggling with recruitment and retention. At EY, our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Welcome back. I'm joined on the podcast now by Mary Connaughton, Director of CIPD Ireland, to discuss the findings of their latest HR Practices in Ireland survey. Mary Connaughton, my colleague Ellen O'Regan was writing this week in the Irish Times about the difficulties the big four accountancy firms are facing in holding on to newly qualified accountants is this an issue right across the professional services sector holding on to young talent or, or what are your members telling you? Hi Cliff, we are certainly hearing that there is an issue in terms of staff retention and particularly at that early career stage, not just in the accountancy firms but across other sectors and other professional areas and um, other medical ones. So yes, it is common. And we also have to, we have to think about that the people who might be coming out of these professional qualifications now may not have had the opportunity to travel because of COVID going back a couple of years when they might have had maybe college breaks and um, to travel abroad. So Often for many of them, they're now taking the opportunity to travel abroad and to explore new ways of working and new places. And that can be driving their retention issue. Yeah, interesting. You, you anticipated my, my next question there, Mary, that, about the, I suppose, the pent up demand after COVID. Is the feeling that these employees are, are just heading off for a few years to see the world? Or is there something more going on in terms of, you know, housing costs here and uh, younger people considering that, look, it, it might be easier to set up in, in, in another country in Australia or, or the UK or, or wherever. Or, or what are you hearing on that? We're certainly hearing that the cost of living is an issue and it is driving people to, to leave jobs or even to move within the country. So the cost of living is definitely a driver and linked to that. And part of that would also be the difficulties with accommodation. So there are difficult things for people new into the labour market to address and hence it can feed into their decision making. 
I think people are making a decision to leave, not necessarily making a decision about whether or not they'll come back, Mm. because we know from our history as a country that people can come back after two, three years, or maybe they come back in 10 years, or maybe they come back in 20 years. And various different campaigns have often been run to try and bring them back. Mm. But certainly we are hearing of, you know, even not just in accountancy, among physiotherapists, for example, nearly a whole class going off to somewhere like New Zealand Mm. for a couple of years. And then bit by bit coming back in dribs and drabs, but some deciding to stay for another few years. So it's a bit variable, Cliff. And I think what we as a country have to think about is how attractive is it to come back here to work, to find accommodation Mm. and to get a well-paid job. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. What kind of strategies can companies employ to hold on to younger workers? Can Can they put in some kind of rule that they must stay for a few years after their training is finished or some incentives or what kind of uh, approach can management take to try and address this problem? We have seen that in areas like accountancy, often people are on contract during their traineeship period Mm. and that kind of holds them in the country, in the job for a number of years. And hence, when they get to the end of that, they tend to leave because they have been tied to it and haven't had the chance to maybe leave earlier prior to completing their qualification. But for some organisations that may not have that particular structure in place, you know, there is value at times to giving fixed term contracts, because Mm -hmm. then you know that you could have a cohort with you for a certain number of years. But at the same time, because we have such a tight labour market, it's hard to do that, because if employees have the opportunity of having a fixed term contract versus a permanent contract, Mm -hmm. that's what they want. So we do think that really trying to um, hold on to people is more about the culture, the purpose of the job, the purpose of the organisation. Young people coming from college are asking much more questions about what does diversity and inclusion really look like in your organisation? Do you live it? What are you doing on the sustainability agenda? What development will I need? And being able to honestly answer those questions is having an impact both in terms of attracting young people in and in keeping them. Because if they come in and after a couple of years, they think that there's more lip service to things like, you know, being purposeful, having purposeful work, getting learning and development, really being inclusive in terms of the profile employees and the way voices are heard from within the organisation. They will leave if they're not very happy with those situations. I guess some of those Metrics are some of those, uh, whether they're present in a company or not, are, are hard to are hard to measure and and hard to gauge. I suppose how do, how does management go about developing that kind of change culture in an organisation? What kind of experiences are you are you seeing in Ireland at the moment on that score? We are seeing many organisations step back and think that we cannot just change like our employer brand for bringing in new recruits. We actually have to change more fundamentally. Mm. And I think that and the sustainability agenda is driving some to really think about actually what is our contribution to society? How do we reduce our carbon rating? What can we do to behave more sustainably in a CSR community support um, way of doing things? So we are hearing about real change, but that's probably in a small number of organisations that have taken this to their heart, but also in a number of small organisations who have got the wherewithal to actually be very focused on what are we about and the societal impact we're going to have. So there is much more attention going on that. On a practical basis, what's important to employees is their development and their career progression. Mm. And if it isn't possible for them to move upwards, because not any everyone can be promoted uh, very regularly, 
what development opportunities are they providing? So can they move into projects? Can they take a passion project on board alongside their day job? Is there real opportunities for employees to have a voice in the organization and to have a say? Mm. And where organizations are working on those things, they won't always be perfect, but where they're working on them, employees often give them the benefit of the doubt and helps with trust. So they're more likely to stay. Yeah, interesting area, all right. And a change, I suppose, from the traditional model where people just wanted a few extra euro every year, although I suppose with the cost of living crisis, that's important too. Just to widen it out a bit, Mary, what's your experience generally, more generally, in terms of skills shortages at the moment? There are some talk that the economy in some areas that growth may be slowing a bit, but the the skills shortage in many sectors seems to be as bad as ever. Certainly, that's our experience, Cliff. We do an annual skills shortages survey, and each year the number of organisations say they are facing skill shortages has gone up. In our 2023 survey, that is 90% of organisations facing some kind of skills shortage, like up from 85% in 2022. Mm, huge number, nine, nine out of 10. Yeah, it's a huge It's a Nine huge out result. of 10 are facing yeah. it. Yeah, yes. Now, if you look at that, apart from looking into where those skill shortages might be, mm. if you look at that from a labour force perspective, we have a, thankfully, a growing labour force. It's gone up to 2.6 million. Mm. But we also have a growing economy and more and more organisations are telling us that they do want to grow and they want to take on more employees. And that actually means that there is a real squeeze. And because there isn't enough people in the labour market to meet that need, people are going to move about and people are going to be able to change jobs easily. So that sense of having skill shortage is going to exist while we are facing the current level of growth with the current size of our labour market. Okay. Is, is that causing companies to put off expansions or delay expansions because they just can't get hold of the, they just can't get hold of the people? It is in some cases. And we've certainly been talking to some organisations about the level of stress and burnout that might be being experienced mm. because when you are trying to recruit in new people and you can't get them in the timeline you want, often new developments fall to current employees and that raises issues around stress and burnout. And of course, we know that lifestyle is also important to people and work-life balance. So that of itself is a problem and certainly it's a risk that we call out where there aren't enough people and really often the organisation has to take a more well-being focused approach and postpone some of those developments or push out their timelines. And we do hear that in some cases. We will hear of organisations that say, okay, this was our development plan and we can't actually deliver it because we don't have the skills. In fact, it's one of the issues in our housing market at the moment is that the labour force size in construction is not big enough to build the volume of houses that we would actually like in the country. Mm. What are the sectors and the and the kind of jobs which are experiencing the worst of the shortages at the moment, Mary, or is it, or is it, or is it across the board? We do believe it is across the board. For us, the highest area comes out as what we classify as operations and frontline employees. Okay. That can include a whole range of manufacturing and production roles, but it can also include health services roles. So we're finding that is the highest one. And year on year, that has gone up over the past three or four years. Mm. Now, the IT sector is still reporting shortages, even though we had a slowdown in the IT sector last year. And last year, we had 
38% of organisations saying they were experiencing IT skill shortages. But this year, that had gone down to 29%. Okay. So there are still shortages in that sector, but they're not as high as they were. But at the same time, this year, we're now seeing the increasing developments in cloud computing and AI technology. And that is now driving again up the technology skills. Finance comes through, project management comes through, customer service comes through. So there's quite a broad section of areas that are finding um, it difficult to fill technical um, skills gaps. Okay, so still very much an employee's market in terms of in terms of looking for work. Does that mean that companies are continuing to have to be flexible about remote working? flexible working practices and so on, which uh, which of course we saw during COVID, some talk that they're being pulled back in some sectors, but presumably if companies are desperate for staff, they have to go some way to meet the way the staff want to work. Yes, we would certainly know that many companies would have that as central to their talent agenda, because if they have roles that can be done offsite and people have performed them well, mm. you really have to continue with that practice. We know that there is definite value in having people back on site for a number of days a week and being there to collaborate with other people. So we're not advocating for 100% remote working because we do think organizations need the collaboration, the innovation, you know, the culture, the development that being on site brings. But what they have to do is to make sure that the time on site is spent in that way. And if I am expected to be on site two days a week, I'm not spending my time on Zoom calls to people who are in other locations or who aren't on site that day. So we're seeing more collaborative approaches being brought in. But certainly on the talent agenda, it is definitely very clear that that is something that companies have to do. And when organizations make a change to demand more time on site, they do find that they're employee turnover rate goes up. And I think we're also seeing more investment in upskilling in terms of realizing that if we can't bring in new skills, how do we develop them internally? So there is more emphasis going on that and on looking at what future skill needs are necessary. So what do we need for the future? So now more conversations around, well, is that role that we're looking for here, if we're having trouble filling it, what does that look like in two years time? And is there a different skill set that we might try and bring in? Or maybe we need to grow people into that role. What hasn't been so high now, our research was done earlier in the year. Mm. What hasn't been so high in our data is trying to bring in technology to um, augment some of the work. Okay. So we think that there's a lot more that could happen around redesigning roles and augmenting work with technology and that is one way in which companies will be able to continue their productivity, but maybe not grow their headcount. Okay, an interesting one. All right, and a lot of a lot of challenges there for for personnel and human resource managers in organisations. Is there a typical model that has emerged in terms of remote working? Is it is it two or three days a week, or is it coming in for particular events or or, or functions, or is it just varying still hugely from one company to another? Well, certainly our research is telling us that it is falling to being an average of two or three days a week. So from our survey of of members of their organizations, one third said they're in two days a week, one third said they're in three days a week, Mm. and then the others varied sometimes one day a week or sometimes it varies from week to week. 
So, yeah, that is definitely the pattern that is emerging. But now there's more and more focus going on. Well, what are we doing while we're in and making sure that maybe there's town hall meetings, there's discussion of what the culture looks like, because culture is one of the things that seems to have slipped back as a result of coming out of the pandemic and the remote working agenda. And now companies want to put more attention on it and make sure their culture is future fit. But Cliff, we always have to remember in these conversations that about 50 percent of the workforce in Ireland have jobs that require that they're on site mm. to do their jobs all the time. Absolutely. So if you're in manufacturing or if you're in distribution or retail, they're on site jobs. So the conversation around flexible working is an interesting one, but it doesn't always apply to all portions of the labour force and some organisations have to manage their way through certain jobs that have to be on site and certain mm. jobs that have the offer of flexibility. Okay. Just a final question. In, in terms of, of turnover rates, are companies still reporting high turnover rates given the tight level of the jobs market or what, what are you seeing in that area? We are, yes. We are seeing employee turnover increase and it increased in 2023 over what it was in 2022. So this year we found that we had 56% of organisations reported employee turnover rates of 10% or more. So 10% is quite a big change. And we have 50% of employers saying it's higher than that 10%. So that gives you a kind of a benchmark of the level of that. And that would have been lower. That would have been, you know, more like 40% if we went back 12 months. So it is going up. And, you know, people are saying to us, we do feel that employee turnover rates are going up. And very few of them are actually surveying their employees about whether they intend to leave and what might help them stay. Mm. And we think there's more scope for companies to do that in view of the turnover rates. Okay, a lot of work ahead, Mary, for the for the Institute and for the human resource profession in general. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Cliff. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Mary Connaughton and Dermot Good for joining me on the podcast. John Casey produced this episode with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor, EY, for its continued support. Remember, as a subscriber to the Irish Times, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. You can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Cliff Taylor. Until next time, goodbye.